1: Showtime.
0: Just lift your eyes up, let your wives rise up,
2: see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you, stars our father's children, when snuff porn, and pedo forms begin to get top villain rock, when famine claims millions,
1: Peace. And welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, our weekly broadcast where we talk about modern day slavery human trafficking. Uh, this program is an extension of Facebook group, the move to abolish 21st century slavery and human trafficking. Uh, we discuss it every week here. Uh, Max Parthis is our usual host that brings in the lead. Scotty Reed is behind the scenes and also one of the co hosts. And this is Johanna Nelaya. Uh, we are again. Uh, This is an extension of the Facebook, uh, New Abolitionist Radio, and Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking. Tonight on our program, we are going to be covering quite a bit of territory. We uh, had a guest that was with us last week. He was a call-in guest that shared with us a brother named Thomas Sanders, a military veteran, and uh, got out of the military and did a short period of time as a prison guard. And in his call, he spent about five to ten minutes with us on the air last week and told us uh, briefly what he saw in the short period of time he was there and what he learned and what caused him to decide to reverse himself and back up out of the uh, the life of uh, being a, a prison, prison guard, a, a, a plantation overseer. So we're hoping to have him back tonight for an actual formal interview where he will be giving us the information from behind behind the scenes, the actual plantation information we want to find out about, modern-day slavery as he saw it, the conditions, living conditions, uh, the enslavement conditions, uh, anything he can share with us, uh, the abolitionists uh, we need to know. So we're looking forward to hopefully having Brother Thomas Sanders with us tonight. We're going to talk about the story of a a young brother named Tremaine Wilborn, who turned himself in after a fatal encounter with Memphis police uh, about a week ago. He's already been tried and convicted by the police chief, of course, and, of course, by the racist white supremacist media. And so far, no one's even seen any dash cam footage. Um, And it's also good to note that his bail has been set at over 10 times what the bail amount was set for uh, Dylan Roof, who, of course, massacred nine innocent churchgoers in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, just about a month ago. We're going to talk about the United Auto Workers Local 2865, the union which represents 13,000 teaching assistants and other student workers throughout the University of California, uh, who called on the AFL-CIO to end its affiliation with the International Union of Police Associations in a resolution that was passed by its governing body on July 25th. We're going to tell you why abolitionists need to get behind and support this idea. On the heels of a public apology in June by Whole Foods, CEOs over allegations that the store overcharges customers for seafood, we are going to uh, revisit Whole Foods and uh, discuss how they're now under fire for their use of prison labor. This information has been floating around out there for a little bit of time, and there's a new uh, article from Vice News, which goes back into a little bit more detail. So we're going to bring that together with some... Info that we shared with you on the Abolitionist Daily a few months back, which uh, gives you some stunning info about the prison complex in Colorado that has thousands of inmates at one uh, business owner's uh, disposal so he can put whoever he wants, as many people as he wants, right on into modern day slavery, making 50, 60, 70 cents a day to help him create all sorts of goods and products that he sells and generates millions, about 60 to $70 million a year that he makes off of this. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to take a look at attorneys general across the uh, United States who are all facing all types of serious criminal charges. As we uh, discuss on uh, the new abolitionist radio program quite frequently, the lawlessness of law enforcement in America is astonishing. So we're going to cover several cases of uh, attorneys general across America facing criminal charges. And uh, we're just going to ask a straight-up question. What happens when the state's top cop is found out to be corrupt? Uh, Once again, we're supporting information – well, we're uh, providing supporting information to uh, back up what we always say. These people need to be facing RICO charges, criminal conspiracy, racketeering charges. We need to be continuing to put together this info so somebody will help us uh, put these people in jail. Our Ferguson is America series uh, tonight is a focus on Maine, where one of the highlights is private prison company CCA Corrections Corporation of America. One of the uh, chair, one of the board members being Thurgood Marshall Jr. <clears throat> they just spent twenty five thousand dollars on behalf of the Republican uh, candidate Paul LePage, a man that is now Maine's newly elected governor. State law in Maine forbids putting prisoners in a for-profit prison, so what the governor's going to do up there with that CCA money that they bought his, his decision-making for them, he's going to go ahead and start participating in human mm-hmm. trafficking by sending Maine prisoners to private prisons outside of the state. Our uh, rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Everton w- Wagstaff, a man that spent over 23 years behind bars took him two decades to prove his innocence. When he went into prison, he was uh, actually a literate. He learned how to read, and he learned how to get his hands on law books, and he learned how to fight his way out of the prison plantation. Our abolitionist in profile is Samuel Burris, 1808 to 1869. So you can expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio, where you can find archived podcasts of New Abolitionist Radio at newabolitionistradio.blogspot.com. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1-530-881-1400. The access code is 549-032 and pound. You press star, six, and then one, and you'll be queued up from the conference line and come in and give us your questions or your thoughts on any of the, the topics of modern-day slavery and human trafficking. So once again, this is Johanna and Elia. Uh, we got Scotty Reed running things and one of the co-hosts. And I think, did Max Parthas join us?
2: Yep, I'm here, brother.
1: Maximus Parthas <laughs> is in the house. I'm done talking, y'all. Max is here. <laughs> yeah. On,
2: well, uh, I just got my power back on. Over 4,000 people lost power here in uh, our community.
0: Damn. So I uh,
2: literally just got it back on. And happy to be able to be back with you guys this week and talk about the things that we need to talk about, man. You know, what's been in my bonnet these past few days is the circumstances that's going on with the Memphis police officer that was shot, Sean Bolton, you know, and uh, how people are automatically, well, the police chief and the police and the media are automatically saying that the man that did it uh, is a murderer and that he's responsible for murderers. And, you know, considering what's recently happened with Sandra Bland and so many others, I'm really... Yeah, Walter Scott, I'm really questioning that statement. I'm thinking that he might be being railroaded. He may be the one guy who said, you know what? I'm going to save my life today. <laughs> but, you know. you got to far- count
1: on somebody saying that. Doesn't that just make common sense that somebody would want to live? You saw Walter Scott try to run. Somebody might actually defend themselves. I mean, go figure.
2: So. You know, I'm, I've asked people to uh, make a call for the uh, dash cam video. We want to see the dash cam video.
0: I will go further. And greetings to you, brothers. Please, Scott. And greetings, of course, to the listening audience. I will even go further. Uh, every story I've seen when there's been a police-involved shooting and the dead person is a civilian, non-police officer. We always know if they've been smoking weed, if they was drunk, had alcohol in their right. system, we hear all, everything just, you know, just it's just released to the public. I want to know uh, if the same – if his dead body, this cop in Memphis, this neo-slave catcher, if he's going to go through the same rigorous testing, if his body's going to be tested, what drugs might he have in his system? The sister is saying that her brother said that the guy would got all aggressive with him and then, you know, uh, had restrained his arms and then told him to raise his arms and, you know, giving conflicting um, – Commands and how can I raise my arms if you got a hold of my arms and and then you know a struggle ensued and the way the sister described it was kill or be killed, all right and and so I I think it's totally plausible and logical and reasonable uh, to believe that this man uh, possibly feared for his life given the history of policing in America that we talk about every Wednesday night on this program on on various other programming on the network. So, but I, that's what I want to see. I also want to know, I want to open up his veteran records because this guy was a veteran, a, a Iraqi veteran. What was his role? What was his job? Was he just working in an office in a support position, working in communication, or was he out there policing the Iraqis? Because I know there's a lot of I- Iraqi civilians. By some counts, they say a million people, you know, uh, uh, Iraqi civilians were have been killed since George Bush first invaded. So I want to know all of that. Does he have post-traumatic stress? Has he ever been treated for that? Was he being treated for that? What but kind of record does he have when it comes to uh,
2: dealing with the public? Because we know that this Memphis police are dealing with a lot of corruption charges right now.
0: Right, right. All of all of those things. He, I, we want full transparency. Let's test his dead body like you tested uh, all the victims. Who have been killed by police victims, or you call them suspects? The mainstream media calls it suspects, but let's test it. Let's let's treat their body the same way that you treat the victim. Where is the media on this? The media should be asking these questions. Of course, we know they are the not asking these them questions. They're calling
2: them cop killer. Uh, they've already started doing it. They exactly, it.
0: exactly, exactly. So uh, anyway, those are my thoughts on it.
2: I'd also like to point out uh, the obviousness of the railroading going on here. You know, Dylan Roof received a million-dollar bail bond. Uh, right. The cop that just killed nine murders. Yeah, for nine murders. And the cop that just killed Sandra Bosa on video received a million-dollar bond. But this dude has ten million-dollar bond. Now, why is that?
1: Yeah. Well, to answer Scotty's question, first of all. And we've discussed this, you know, in all of these cases. I I believe I remember us talking about it with the – who was the brother there in North Carolina, Uh, Jonathan uh, Farrell? Yes. Um, When we were talking about that at at that point, these cops are a part of one of the strongest unions in one way or another, whichever branch or arm of it or whatever, their unions are some of the strongest political – lobbyists and backers you know we really have in the country so i mean it's like corporations and then cops you know they're basically bulletproof so their protections of their unions and even in their contracts uh always protect them from having to disclose any of that kind of information even if they found you know narcotics in the guy's system or something there's a good chance he's a, a they have some kind of protection that will keep them from disclosing that until after a trial if he's found guilty of something then they can disclose it but like if he's not found guilty of anything or you know they got so many loopholes that they work for themselves well they won't tell you but the common citizen is not a part of any kind of union no matter if you vote in democrat or republican you know if you're a veteran uh if you got a degree a PhD, or phd if you're a christian if you're muslim what you you're not a part of any union that's going to protect you so as soon as you get shot or as soon as you get involved in an incident with the law they're going to disclose all of that information. Tell you, I mean, you saw Walter Scott got murdered, and the next day they told you he was he was arrested in, uh, for assault charge in 1987. That was the, the story to follow up this man getting murdered. So if they haven't released the video footage so far, I'm thinking of it like the John Crawford situation where we didn't see the video footage because it showed clearly that they did what happened, and they don't want that narrative to take set so early. The John Crawford situation took weeks and weeks of people arguing and, and, and speculating that he must have done something to bring, that mur- to bring his death upon himself. He had to do something. So by the time they finally released that video and you saw he was sitting there with his phone on his shoulder and looking at the shelf and not bothering anybody. People was walking past and never even noticed him. And the cops came in and murdered him. Well, by the time that came out, that was weeks and weeks and weeks after
2: So I expect the exact same thing to keep happening. Yeah, I think you might be right on that. But I I really think this is an opportunity for us as a people to come together for our own defenses. What if we found out that this guy literally was defending his life against a killer cop? who have went overboard and could have been a Sandra Bland, should we just accept this at fixed value and call him a cop killer and then send him on to the death chambers? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. I have. Go ahead, Scotty.
0: Well, I, I was just going to add, I heard somebody say, you know, today, well, we heard from the driver of the car, the other passenger, and he said blah, blah, blah. You know he turned himself in too, but this guy wasn't charged with anything, and so she was uh expressing that you know it makes it more probable than not that this guy is guilty of just flat out cold blooded murdering you know this cop uh based on what the driver said, the other guy who who witnessed the event but make no mistake how many times have have uh people uh turned state's evidence? And this guy hasn't been charged with any crimes. He hasn't been given a ticket. If he was indeed illegally parked, where's his ticket? Uh, if he was involved in a drug transaction, where's his charges? Already, he is getting fa- he is getting favorable treatment from the prosecution to tell whatever story they want to tell. Now, I'm not calling him out or or calling him a name or suggesting that he's a snitch. You know. Uh, It's hard, you know, it's easy to sit back and say what we would or would not do when we are not the ones in the crosshairs of that system. Uh, But, you know, I'm just simply saying that is so I don't care what his testimony is. You know, I don't care what it you know, is he going to acknowledge that there was a struggle? Uh, before there was a shot, because one media report again, I don't trust anything until I can verify it with several sources and whatnot. But there was like the end, what how they first tried to paint it was like, like this cop just walked up to this car that was easily parked, he saw people in there, he's gonna investigate. This guy just opened up fire on him from the back seat. Okay, that's the narrative that they're painting, but now I'm hearing now through the sister. And I have seen other reports say that there was some kind, sort of struggle between the two before, um, you right. know, the, the, the shooting. So it could totally be self-defense. Don't tell me black people don't have a reason. And, you know, not just black people, but all people in this country. they killing white people the most. Black people are just, you know, disproportionately uh, killed by police. Your likelihood is what, guys, three times likely, five times more likely if you're black? Depends on where you live at. It could be
1: probably 20
2: times more likely. Uh, I know that the Memphis police spokeswoman, her name is Karen Rudolph, she's already said she won't even
0: entertain
2: the idea that he was defending himself. She won't even entertain the idea. So that's how they're coming at it right from the beginning.
0: So she's not objective. She's not interested in finding the truth. And implementing justice. She is out for blood, you know, because the police unions and their families are going to demand it. And it's a hot political topic. The racist forces out there are going to, you know, be demanding it as well. But, you know, that's why we got to get this guy Dream Team legal defense fund. You know what I'm saying? Going So, so that, you know, cause these are legitimate legal questions. Legitimate. Right. I'm presuming him to be innocent until proven guilty. Let's wait to trial. You know, just like they say about every, you know, George Zimmerman or anybody else. they uh, Darren
2: Wilson.
0: Yeah, Dan Wilson. You know, so that's those are my thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you that you got the right idea there, Scotty. We need to look into this because if we were a bunch of racist white people, we'd already have four million dollars raised for his defense, whether he did it or not. Right. <clears throat> You know, that's how they roll. Well, we're expecting John Sanders to call in. Uh, he was on with us last week, and we're expecting him to call in again this week. I just sent him a me- reminder message, but I guess uh, we can go into our first story and before before that, um, which would actually uh, tie into what we're talking about now, what Johanna just mentioned regarding the police unions and the power that they exercise. It's It's they do to politics through their unions – and through their lobbying, what they do to the civilians in the street. Basically strong arm everything. And the uh, University of California's academic workers, they uh, they called on the AFL-CIO to terminate the police union's membership. Uh, It's pretty amazing to hear that, but basically they're saying that they don't uh, represent labor unions or workers' rights, they're representing the uh, arm of the state is what they are representing through the police unions and that they should not be associated with these same unions who are out there trying to fight for workers' rights. Uh, I think I have the statement right here. I'll read a little bit of it for you. It says, we UAW Local 2865 call on American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, AFL, CIO, to end their affiliation with the International Union of Police Associations and what they do to the civilians in the street basically strong arm everything and the uh university of california's academic workers they uh calls on the they called on the afl cio to terminate the police union's membership uh it's pretty amazing to hear that but basically they're saying that they don't uh, represent labor unions or workers rights they're representing the uh arm of the state is what they are representing to the police unions and that they should not be associated with these same unions who are out there trying to fight for workers rights. Uh, I think I have the statement right here. I'll read a little bit of it for you. It says, We UAW Local 2865 call on American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations AFL-CIO to end their affiliation with the International Union of Police Associations. It is our position that this organization is inimical to both the interests of labor broadly and black workers in particular. Historically and contemporarily, police unions serve the interests of police forces as an arm of the state and not the interests of police as laborers. Instead, their unionization allows police to masquerade as members of the working class and obfuscate their role in enforcing racism, capitalism, colonialism, and the oppression of the working class. We ask that the AFL-CIO recognize this history and take steps to serve the interests of its black workers and community members. And that's just the intro to the letter.
1: Damn, so that's wrong.
2: I think that it's a brilliant move. It, it is a brilliant move because they use these unions, as I said, to strong-arm our politics. You know, they they use their financing.
0: Politicians give them all these exemptions when, you know, when Reagan was going after the unions. I remember, you know, the Reagan administration. I was I was a younger, younger man at the time. But I remember, you know, the union busting with what was it? The air traffic controllers. You remember that? And, you know, the Republicans in America was like on this union busting, you know, thing under uh, Reagan. Uh, but every time they uh, spit that rhetoric, you know, whether it's on the state level or it's a national level, the police unions and fire departments always get an exemption. They're exempt from these union, you know, destroying rules uh, for the state, you know, even in right to work right-to-work states. You know what I'm saying? So, Yeah. Just more to hypocrisy.
2: Yeah, they have nothing to do with labor. Police force has nothing to do with labor, nor are they out for workers' rights. As a matter of fact, they are oppressive to most workers. They're oppressive to black people in general, uh, in particular, and minorities in general, and particularly of poor people and homeless people. This is what the police do. So how they can be a member of the AFL-CIO is really ridiculous. So they should be expunged, From that membership, let them stand alone on their own, without the help of teachers and social workers and people who do not do not have to resort resort to using a gun to enforce their rules.
1: Once again, like we discussed before, with all these killings and police brutalities and uh, these payouts, as they call it, the ghetto lottery. We talked about, you know, around the country, various cities, uh, Philadelphia. I remember were averages somewhere around 14 to 15 million dollars a year in payouts for police, you know, abuse uh, lawsuits. Dallas, 10 to 12 million dollars. Baltimore paid out so many that they put the cap on top of your settlement. You can't get more than 2.5 million dollars. I mean, whether they beat you and handcuff you and drag you behind the car till you rip the pieces, or if they punch you in the mouth, either way you can't get any more than $2.5 million because they had so many lawsuits come against uh, Baltimore police. So as we discussed that in the past, when these police unions or police retirement funds or some kind of way, police have to pay for their malpractice, like a doctor would have to pay for their malpractice. Then we would start seeing some change. And if the AFL-CIO, uh, if their membership began to see some adverse effect of allowing the police to be a part of their membership, in the, where where whether it was dues had to be higher because the insurance, you know, if there was some kind of way to tie police criminality in a monetary charge, you know, like some kind of a, a, a way that they have to pay, we make them pay to where they it starts to hurt everybody that's associated with them. People will eventually begin to drop all this cop worship.
2: What they say about the background of the AFL-CIO is pretty amazing, too. Uh, I think we should also share that part. Uh, It says the AFL-CIO's official mission is to fulfill the yearning of the human spirit for liberty, justice, and community, to advance individual and associational freedom, and to vanquish oppression, uh, privation, and cruelty in all their forms. Now, that's the AFL-CIO's mission. And they say... This, we argue, is the calling of a union to be a force for advancing the lives of workers. Within this framework, police unions fail to meet the criteria of a union or a valid part of a labor movement. While it is true, That police are workers and thus hypothetically subject to the same kinds of exploitation as other laborers, they are also the militarized, coercive arm of the state. It is the job of the police to protect capital and consequently maintain class society. How can there ever be solidarity between law enforcement and the working class when elites call upon the police and their organizations to quell mass resistance to poverty and inequity? The police force exists solely to uphold the status quo. Their material survival depends on it, and they hold a vested interest in the preservation and expansion of the most deplorable practices of the state. I mean, they nailed it right there. Damn, they feel like I'm at church, man. If you I'm go, to, to give an amen. Hey, give it to them. Amen. <laughs> if you go on strike, The police are going to be the ones that come to bust you up. Right. (laughs) You know? And these are supposed to be your union brothers? They are not your brothers. They are parasites just uh, attached to the AFL, CIO, and they should be expunged immediately. I think that this idea should go nationwide.
1: Yes. I fully support it. I see it as being a brilliant stroke. Very well worded. I appreciate the depth and the the descriptions that they've used, the way that they really lay it out and explain to you without any kind of apology. See, you always know when you're reading something that's compromised that the person really is a cop worshiper, really is a brother or a friend, a lover, some kind of way of this slave catcher system. When they try to mix words, they try to lay a soft blow that won't leave a mark. They bust them right in the chops with their stuff right here. I like that. I want to tell it how it is.
2: Yeah, I think that that would help as well to take away some of the authority and power and wealth of these organizations called the police uh, unions, which do nothing but continue to oppress the people. And their main goal is not to reduce their force in any way, but to expand it further, to get more people employed, to get higher wages for the people that are employed, and to have more prisons and more uh, officers on the job to the point where maybe they just outnumber the civilization. <laughs> you know, it could be like two cops for every one person. I know I'm being extreme, but I'm just saying that's how it seems to be going. We've got a million cops. We don't need a million cops. We'd be lucky if we need 200,000. Well, we're coming up on our first break. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Scotty Reed, your Alaya and Max Partners. We'll be right back after these messages.
0: You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasts and live program scheduling visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com.
2: Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We were just talking about the police unions uh, being members of the AFL-CIO and how uh, they the unions now are trying to boot them out. And we say that that would be a fantastic move, not only for the abolitionist movement, but for people in general to take away the constant threat and power that they use to exercise not only on um, civilians within the community, but also within our political structure. No one should have that type of power where even a mayor is afraid to say anything at all about police for fear that they might come down on him. And when they do things like turn their back on their boss, the mayor, as in unison, that tells you right there that they're not uh, for the people at all. Anyway, um. I think we still haven't gotten our guests in, and we may not get him tonight. He might have uh, forgotten or something like that. So we'll just move on, and if we can get him in next week, uh, we will. If not, if he comes in later, we'll bring him in then. In the meantime, I guess we should go on to the next story, which is our Whole Foods story, which you've been keeping close track of now for some months, Johannan. Good work on the Whole Foods story, man. Uh, you want to tell us what you got for us today? Well, sure.
1: Um, I saw a... Uh... Uh, a new story that came out from Vice News um, here this week that's talking about uh, about the situation, and it reminded me of a uh, uh, series of stories that I covered on the Abolitionist Daily uh, a few months ago where uh, that story actually went into, into quite a bit of depth about this prison, Colorado uh, State Prison, Complex that had uh, several prisons, all feeding inmates into one labor complex that uh, that this gentleman is overseeing and reaping. Hold on,
2: let me me ask real quick. Are you Uh saying they're shifting prisoners from one prison to this prison in order to employ them?
1: There are several prisons that are all feeding prisoners into. They're all in the same complex. There's several thousands of Colorado State prison inmates that are all on the grounds, and they're all available to this one particular business. The name of the uh, of the business is Colorado Correctional Industries. And this original story that I got this from is from a website called uh, PacificStandardMagazine.com, um, and again, this was back uh, much earlier this year, where the uh, the article actually goes on site to go visit this gentleman in Canyon City, Colorado, it says it's a large rural complex where six state prisons with a total of 4,000 inmates are all available for slave labor to this guy. It says some of these inmates manufacture uh, manufacture toys, others tend. To actual buffalo on feedlots and dairies outside in the mountain air. Uh, Steve La- Steve Smith is the prison labor program's mustachio director, who is supposedly retiring this December, uh, this December of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that his whole point is to convert prisoners through labor mm-hmm. into becoming productive citizens. Isn't that what they always say from the earliest state prisons in Alabama and Georgia, Tennessee? Mm-hmm. It was always a matter of we're going to rehabilitate these people by putting them to hard labor for slave wages or no wages at all and then enrich the state coffers or enrich our individual uh, personal wealth at their expense. But we're going to rehabilitate them through this process. So, anyway, the Vice story was talking about Whole Foods, who, as we said in the intro, has been under fire for lying to folks about uh, the weights and the, the products that they're selling as it is. And there's also been. Uh, scandal over the years, talking about their uh, uh, their their uh, non-GMO and so-called organic labeling and different. So they've they've had some other issues, but um, this story comes out it says on the heels of a public apology in June by Whole Foods CEOs over allegations that the store overcharges customers for seafood, produce, and other goods weighed by the pound. The grocery chain is now receiving a fresh round of criticism for its use of cheap labor, prison labor, to uh, produce some of these goods. Old Foods is one of the buyers of fish and cheese produced by Colorado prison inmates through a unique prison labor arrangement in the state. That, I mean, just they're exposing this, and just listen to how they say that a unique prison labor arrangement. How damn unique is slavery? Mm, mm, mm. Is this is this is new? This is the tr- this is trending. This is catchy. The the fad that's out now is is slavery.
2: That's uh, in the commercials.
1: Yeah, it, well, it's been around a while. So, I don't know how unique it is. It's pretty damn well-worn. But yeah, in the state of Colorado, they've got a special labor arrangement that allows inmates to work for the profit of a private corporation. People, this is the whole point of the program you're listening to. Just in a nutshell, they just told you, we've been telling you modern-day slavery for years. We've been producing the facts, giving you the information, story after story after story, all over the country, and here... In this Vice News article by Colleen Curry, July 21st, 2015, straight up tells you the state of Colorado allows inmates to work for the profit of a private corporation. That is slavery. You can't take these people's work and enrich your private corporation and pay them slave wages. I think 70 cents a day is going to qualify as being a slave wage. You think? According to to the 13th (laughs) Amendment. This is perfectly kosher. So this is why we're discussing this on this program. According to the 13th Amendment, slavery is abolished except when it's a punishment for a crime where a person has been duly convicted. We told you 97% of federal convictions come through, through by way of plea deals. 94% of state convictions come by way of plea deals. We've do- discuss with you stacking the charges all of these cases of people getting killed by the police of people getting taken into custody and dying the sandra blands and the six other five other sisters that died in the last month all these people are getting charges stacked up on them by the cops themselves let alone when the prosecutor gets a hold to them so this is not duly i'm saying all this to say this is not duly convicting anybody of anything the supreme court justices told us a couple of months ago anthony kennedy said a couple of months ago that the Fourth Amendment, or the, that, the, that the right to a, a fair trial is a myth. It is not happening. Judges are not seeing evidence. Juries are not hearing from witnesses. Prosecutors are stacking charges and putting them in front of people who have been thrown in jail and can't afford bail and sit there and languish in jails for months and months and months. Prosecutor finally gets around to them and says, okay, I know you've lost your job. You've lost your home. Your family's starving. You can't get out of here until we figure out what we're going to do with you. So you're at my mercy. Here's 50 charges I'm going to throw at the wall, and something's going to stick. You're probably going to do 50 to 100 years. So why don't you just take this deal and do four years, and my conviction rate will stay right around 99%. Four years from now, you'll get out. You'll do some slave labor for the state. People, this is the whole situation in a nutshell. Whole Foods is guilty of taking these people's slave labor and selling you some so-called good greens and fresh fish and all of this or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> damn, man, America.
2: 2,000 people, or up to 4,000 people employed at yeah. 70 freaking cents a day. Yeah. Commercial foods that people are out there buying all over the country, if not globally, because this is also an international company. I'm sure they probably ship their stuff overseas. This is, as you just said, this is how the 13th Amendment is being exploited by these private prisons, and they give you these stupid-ass explanations about how working people for free is going to make them better people. The same thing we've been hearing since 1850 and before. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, hell, since 1550. Since 1550. Hell, John Locke going and stealing Africans and bringing them back to England and teaching them English so they can go and go tell other Africans, if you come with us, we're going to help you become better people.
0: You know, um, I just want to let the listeners know, uh, those who are tuned in to New Abolitionist Radio right now, if you have a quick comment or question, because the guys do have a lot of information they try to get through quickly. Uh, But if you have a comment, uh, question you would like to ask about 21st century slavery and human trafficking, give us a call 530-881-1400. The participant code is 549032 32 of course, hit star six and one to come in on air, star six and one to come in on air. Uh, our guest who was scheduled for tonight, again, doesn't look like he's going to make it. If he's listening, um I don't know what line he may have called in but the studio line is 704-951-5030. Sorry for interrupting, guys.
1: Not at all, brother. We do uh we do get into the information so thank you for giving people the people the number that they need so they can call in cuz I mean people know we're seeing the narrative is changing and thankful, you know, to use Scotty, for the network overall, Max for uh, the hard work you do you guys bringing me in to be a part of it we have seen amongst us three how what effect what this program has on the national narrative so people know what's happening people are understanding and then seeing the connection so there's people out there that probably want to call in or want to join the conversation and have something that they could tell us that we don't know
2: yeah feel free to call in if you want to we are on limited time but uh you know Give us a ring and we'll do our best to answer whatever questions you may have. I do know that uh, from reports I've heard upwards of a million people are employed in these prisons, uh, whether they're working within the prisons, like cooking food for the other prisoners or working on uh, some of these factories, like California's 33 prisons has 70 factories built right into the prisons, call centers and things like that. Yeah, Those are a lot of jobs that people can't get on the outside Because prisoners are doing them for as little as 11 cents an hour or uh, something like a dollar a day sometimes in the prisons. You can't compete as a small business trying to run your small business with uh, employees you're paying $15 an hour to if a prison is employing other people at 11 cents an hour to do it. How can you compete? And Whole Foods is a perfect example of that with thousands of people working for 70 cents a frickin' day to make commercial goods sold on the open market. That's slavery, people. And if they're shipping prisoners from one prison to another in order to fill these jobs, that is illegal by every sense of the word in every country. Yeah. 584
1: million dollars. That's not even, uh, that's from two years ago. Uh, state of Colorado Department of Corrections uh, annual budget, people. So Colorado taxpayers, your state is spending uh, consistently upwards of or near somewhere around $600 million a year on, on this Department of Corrections budget. And what it's affording uh, you for that big hunk of your tax money, what, what they're doing with that is entering into uh, contracts to enrich themselves with private corporations to, you know, make millions and tens and sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety, a hundred million dollars a year off of slave labor. That's what you're getting for your six hundred million dollar investment in the Department of Corrections every year. That's what you're getting for. It's them using you to engage in business to make themselves wealthy. And they're not rehabilitating anybody with this.
2: It's Just exploitation It's pure yeah. and, simple. and this uh gentleman, D- Dennis Dunsmore, who's the director of the program, says CCI makes $64 million a year. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's understating it because in that report that I read, it also said 2,000 made slave laborers. But you found that there's upwards of 4,000. So yeah. if it's upwards of 4,000, it's safe to say that it's probably closer to $100 million. Yeah, a that's year.
1: double the number. So, I mean... And you can best believe that they're, they're not sitting there with 4000 available and, and leaving 2000 to not have to be a part of it. If he just told you 2000 is bringing him $64 million, then 4000 is bringing him $130 million.
2: That's 4000 jobs lost in the community yeah. and $100 million in revenue that's not generating within the community because of slavery. Unions yeah. should be eating this up right now. The same unions that were talking about getting rid of the police should be eating this up right now. Yes, yeah. yeah. And. That uh, actually is a good tie-in to the next story as well. Um, Who covers these things? I mean, who's responsible for monitoring this and saying that these things are wrong? Uh, Wouldn't that be the attorney generals across the United States? (laughs) Wouldn't that be? So as far as I know, every state has a single attorney general, the state attorney general. Am I wrong?
1: No, sir. You are correct.
2: So you got 50 state attorney generals. As of 2015, over 10% of them are facing criminal charges themselves. That is unacceptable. How can we yeah. only have 50, but I just posted up on New Abolitionist Radio, six different attorney generals who are facing charges right now, from everything from bribery to coercion uh, to uh, uh what do they call it when you try to stop justice from occurring? (laughs) Uh, They got a soap opera going on where another one is blackmailing somebody he's sleeping with. You got another one uh, who's facing charges because they used her position in order to destroy their competitor who was trying to get their job out in Texas facing criminal charges. Uh, You got one out in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania that's uh, facing criminal charges. She's the one who was using her position in order to decimate her uh, competition, this is happening in six different states with six different attorney generals. We're talking about the top cop in the entire state. So when the top cop is corrupt, how is it that we don't focus on their career-wide activities rather than just this one thing that we found out that we're doing? Because we've said here many times on New Abolitionist Radio that when you bust somebody for a crime, That's usually not when they started the crime. Usually they started doing it before that. You just happen to catch them then. And we're talking Mm -hmm. about people who are in a position to uh, help slavery and human trafficking move on. How many of them are under the payroll of private prisons? How many of them are directly tied to the prison lobbyists? How many of them have uh, been... Uh, advocated for by prison lobbyists. How many of them are responsible? For things up to and including murder. You never know, because people die behind this. Out in Colorado, they yeah. killed they killed the warden of one of the largest prisons in Colorado, and under mysterious circumstances.
1: Yep. Several uh, um, prosecutors and district attorneys, I believe, Texas was also hit up um, around the country for a while. These last two or three years, there have been at least three or four that I I can just vaguely remember. And this was back when we were still piecing together, you know, a lot of this information ourselves. So, um, yes, this has gone on for a while. When you start messing with these private prisons, affecting their contracts or their ability to contract, you see that across the board, uh, even as a story that we uh, were talking about, as a part of this, the main uh, um, attorney general, or was it the governor? state already has a law against sending people to the prisons, but you see even states with a the law private prisons they still figure out a way to politician the for the law and still get those bodies in those beds. So, I mean, I, I just wish people would get, would get you know, really upset about this and uh, let it affect how we vote, let it affect what we're talking about, let it affect how we spend our money, let it affect who we let represent us in, in local politics as well. Uh, you know, cities are being taken over by these uh, these uh, private prison deals. I mean, you see, Wallace County is reeling. It probably won't be able to recover unless they're able to reopen, you know, a, a 2,800 bed facility again because now there's $65, $70 million in the hole and a, about four or 500 jobs are, are gone. So we got to get active. I,
2: I want to point out, too. That, you know, we mentioned before that 90% or 95% of all prosecutors are white, and 79% of them white males. Well, when you're looking at attorney generals, you'll find close to the same thing. All six of these people that we've talked about, these attorney generals right now, are white people. One of them is a white woman. So these are all white people doing this, uh, and they have no concern for the black community whatsoever. We've already shown that over and over again. And let me give you an example. One of the stories out of Utah which involved two attorney generals, a former and a present. Uh, they say that Mark Leonard Shirtlaw 56, who was a three-term Utah attorney General from 2012 to uh, 2000 to 2012, was charged with 10 felonies that include receiving or soliciting a bribe, accepting improper gifts, tampering with a witness and obstructing justice. And this is according to court documents which officially accused him of taking trips to the Pelican Hill Resort in Newport Beach that had been paid for by a businessman seeking help from his office. And the person that replaced Mark uh, Leonard Shutloff, I believe his name was Swallow, was previously a attorney for payday lending firms. Hmm. And he went into business with the attorney general who, and then replaced the attorney general when this guy stepped down in 2012, both of them being charged with the same things. And that's just Utah. That's just Utah. As I said, it's uh, Texas, Pennsylvania's involved in it as well, and several other states. And when you're talking about this, only 50 of you guys, and over 10% of you that we know of are corrupt. That is a major problem. That is a major problem.
1: Yep. And that's why I said, you know, voting locally because most people you talk to that's going to be their knee jerk response that's going to be their their solution you know well it's our fault because we don't vote and we don't pay attention to the local politics these are individuals that have been put into you know into these offices by those those uh, elections that you control you know we're not looking at electoral college here we're not looking at, at hanging chads and 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 recounts and, you know, all this type of thing like this. This is something where on a very local level, you can control who's going to be your state's attorney general. And when you find out this kind of information from a new abolitionist radio or Black Talk Radio Network News or whoever's reporting this type of info before you even have to vote, it's just like the voting season we sat through last November 2014 when we saw all over the country governors' races, uh, attorneys general, uh, prosecutor races, different of these local polit- uh, political, judicial, uh, with judicial implications races, and these people are all former lobbyists and and uh, advocating for private prisons and stumping for these folks and taking big money from private prisons over the years. Then suddenly they turn up on your ballot, and because Obama's name is not at the top of the, of the ballot with a D next to it, and you just vote D everybody then you suddenly are not politically savvy enough to pay attention or to listen or to research, and you just put these people in? Well, that's how you get 10% of the of the entire nation's attorneys general are corrupt. That's how you get that.
2: Over 10%. Damn, man. That we know of for sure, because yeah. they're facing charges. Yeah. And I think they all should be investigated now, including Greta yes. Lynch. Every one of them should be investigated now, because this seems to be uh, a trend where... You've got over 10% of them that you know for sure are involved in corruption. And it's not just the Democrats and it's not just the Republicans. Uh, the attorney general out in Pennsylvania is a Democrat. The one in Colorado is a Republican. So right. this is cross parties. This is just plain old everyday corruption.
1: Yeah. You're not talking about 10% of the population in black communities anywhere in the, in the United States of America that is contributing to the black-on-black crime you're not talking about 10% of black communities anywhere in America, in any city that you name. You're not talking about 10% of the people there who live there who are active citizens, who are not you know, uh, uh, lawbreakers or whatever. You're not talking about 10% of the people when you talk about all the murders committed, all of the drugs sold, all the drugs used. But we see an ex- extended, extrapolated, ramped up, constant war on drugs. And war on crime, broken windows policing. Uh, what else? What else did they get? Uh, stop. Stop questioning frisk. All of these, the uh, 100 to 1 sentencing that Obama turned into 18 to 1. So he's a hero. When you see all of these measures brought to bear, plus dozens and dozens more that I can't even think of the name right now, but all this brought to bear on way one percent of the black communities in any city any state around the country 40 million black folks in this country it was probably more than that you're not even talking about one percent and look at the law enforcement that is put to bear on these people because of that and you got over 10 percent of the of the so-called top cops in every state is corrupt and it ain't it's just a fart in the wind don't nobody care
2: And this is not something you're going to hear anywhere else. This is our research where we found this out to present to you. Uh, And, you know, it traces back. This is just 2015 we're talking about. It's nothing else before that. We're sure there's been a lot more before that. An example would be when Alberto Gonzalez was the attorney general for the United States. And he was involved with racketeering charges along with Dick Cheney, who was at the time the sitting vice president in Wallace County, which stemmed from charges of uh, people being murdered in the prison there and their personal investments in those prisons. Both the sitting attorney general and the vice president had investments with Dick Cheney he had upwards of $80 million of his own money invested in private prisons. And people were dying in the prisons because of what was happening with these two. So it goes way back. This is a uh, this is really something that should be looked at very closely for those who know how. Well, I guess that covers it for that story. Another one uh, that we've exposed, just how dirty this has become and how high up it reaches and who's in bed with who. <clears throat> we'll be coming up on our break in a couple of minutes, and then we're going to get on our Ferguson is America series after that, where we'll focus on Maine and I was a little surprised at Maine. I didn't expect a lot. I didn't find a lot, but what I found out was pretty devastating. Um, before we get into that, anything you guys want to mention, uh, before we take our next break in five minutes?
1: No, I think, uh, what you covered with the, with the attorney's, uh, general thing, it just, just opens up, like you said, in each of these states, this is the top cop, you know? Um, So when people are looking at law enforcement in this country, I mean, part of what our job is, I feel, is to really help people break down what you think you know, what you think you're thinking. Maybe if we just make you literally look at it piece by piece and start figuring out, okay, I thought or I think or this means this or this. And it's just automatic. You haven't really thought about it. So when we start talking about the top law enforcement agent in your state is a crook. It's gonna be hard for me to expect that you actually can respect law enforcement overall in that state, because those people work for. There's a chain of command. Those Mm -hmm. cops work for that attorney general. They can't. They're not just rogues of their own and just saying, well, I mean, I guess he was a crook, but we're all good. This ain't like the the, the the dirty cop in the ranks and all the other good cops just sat there and, and watched while the dirty cop was killing people and raping people and doing, you know, this is not that deal. This is the top of the list. So I just want people to think about, you know, the implications of that. Um, also, I guess since we got a minute, I just want to mention that, you know, this is August. This is our first broadcast in the month of August. Um, and something, you know, just as an abolitionist, as a Pan-Africanist, uh, activist, a uh, revolutionary in my own mind. If nothing else, I just wanted to, to uh, give a shout out to the uh, Black August movements going on across the country. A uh, uh, relatively long tradition, um, you know, it, to my knowledge or whatever. As I was growing up, going back, you know, to the to the days of, of you know, Soledad brothers, you know, this type of thing. The 60s and 70s, at
0: least 30 years old.
1: Yeah, so, uh, just wanted to, uh, to remind folks of the, the month of August is Black August. So traditionally speaking, Black August is considered to be a time where we study the history of, uh, Black w- uh, men, women, and children, you know, throughout this, uh, this country, uh, behind the enemy lines. As Scotty Reed always reminds us in this domestic colony we live in called the United States of America, um, August being significant. Uh, For the reason of of, uh, just reminding folks, the first African slaves were brought to Jamestown in August of 1619. Uh, 1843 activist Henry Highland Garnett called a general slave strike in August, uh, August 22nd to be exact. The Underground Railroad is said to have started on August 2nd, 1850. The March on Washington occurred on August 28, 1963. Grayboro Prosser's Slave Rebellion occurred on August 30th, 1800. Nat Turner planned and executed a slave rebellion that began on August 21st, 1831. The Watts uh, Rebellions began August 11th, 1965. FBI and Mississippi law enforcement used tear gas, guns, and tanks to attack the Republic of New Africa residents. One officer was killed with two others wounded. Uh, there were no RNA casualties of uh, police launching assault on guns and uh, guns and water cannons on the Philadelphia MOVE 9 headquarters, August 8, 1978. Nine MOVE members would be arrested and sentenced to jail terms ranging from 30 to 100 years. Pan-Africanist, black nationalist leaders Marcus Messiah Garner, Fred Hampton, Russell Coats, and Dr. Lucia were all born during the month of August, so salute to Black August movement.
2: Salute. Oh, man, the uh, Underground Railroad began in Black August. Got to love that right there by itself.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. We're not using metaphors. We're talking about the real thing, chattel slavery, where people are owned, operated, abused, and used, and sold on the open market like cattle. And we do this every week on blacktalkradionetwork.com. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages. This is
1: Ron Hayes with Hood News, and you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned. No justice? No justice? No justice? What do we want? What do we want? What do we want? When do we want it? When do we want it? When do we want it? Talk the person next to you and let them know you're glad
2: that they're an African. You are tuning in to the Black Talk Radio Network. and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we are about to get into our Ferguson is America series. This week we focus on the state of Maine. Our Ferguson is America series is based on the DOJ report that came out from Ferguson. And we took that and ran with it and applied it to the whole state and also showed their relationships with prisons and jails and prisons for profit and private prisons. So we could show you exactly how every state is just as bad if not worse, than the city of Ferguson itself. And uh, we're going to start out this one with the report that came out in 2015 regarding the new governor of uh, Maine. So this is going to tell you what's been going on. First of all, uh, they haven't been using private prisons in Maine. And um, the governor has been... I guess, well, let me just read this story. That'll make it real easy. And it says, Maine governor rakes in private prison money shows appreciation. And this is from April 15th. Uh, and it says, two, April 15th, 2011. In Maine's last gubernatorial campaign, the Controversial Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, the nation's largest for-profit prison operator, spent $25,000 on behalf of Republican candidate Paul LePage, now Maine's newly elected governor. The money was given to the Republican Governors Association Maine Political Action Committee, which spent heavily on LePage. No other Maine gubernatorial candidate benefited from the CCA money, campaign finance reports reveal. Although his transition office denied a link with the contributions, LePage met in August with CCA representatives weeks before he became governor. The meeting Breathe new life into the town of Milo's effort to lure CCA into building a giant prison in that remote, impoverished uh, Piscataqua County community. Milo official, officials also met with the page. The town manager, Jeff Gahagan, uh, says CCA officials have talked about a prison housing 2,000 to 2,400 prisoners with 2 to 300 employees. If true, that would be an extraordinarily small number of staff for such a large number of prisoners. The Maine State Prison has just over 400 workers, most of them guards, to deal with just over 900 prisoners. LePage also is looking into boarding Maine Prisoners in CCA prisons out of state. So basically, when they say 900 prisoners, if you transfer that into what uh, a monetary value, in Maine it's almost forty six thousand dollars a year to incarcerate one person for a year so nine hundred prisoners is forty million dollars a year that they're talking about. Those people translate into dollars for CCA and those dollars are forty million dollars a year. Now let me start on the facts as we know them for Maine is Ferguson. In 2014 the population was 1.3 million of the, that population, the white uh whites alone represented ninety-five point two percent. So Maine is ninety five percent white. Blacks or African Americans alone represented one point four percent. Hispanics or Latinos alone represented one point four percent. So you got the same percentage of blacks and Hispanics It's like you say sometimes, uh, Johanna, and it's just 10 black people in the whole state, all 10 of them are going to be in prison. (laughs) Well, let's continue on. Uh, Business quick facts, because we've been seeing that there's a trend here as well. The total number of firms as of 2007 is 150,000. Of those 150,000, black owned firms represented 0.5%, Hispanic owned firms represented 0.7%, and women owned firms, represented a whopping 25.6% of all businesses owned in Maine. Facts and figures as of 2008. Department of Corrections costs. The annual expenditures in 2008 was $168.5 million a year. Average annual cost per inmate As of 2008, was $43,613. The Department of Corrections population, the total number of adult facilities, facilities as of 2008, was six. The population incarcerated, uh, prisons, is 2,150, which is worth $94 million annually as of 2008. So they got a budget of $170 million, and the prisoners themselves are worth ninety four million dollars parole and probation parole population 21 only 21 people are on parole they ended parole in Maine probation population three thousand one hundred and eighty eight now probation often makes almost as much money as keeping them in prisons themselves these people are being exploited just like everyone else so when you hear That Maine only has 2,100 prisoners, and then you have to also add on top of that the 3,188 in probation populations for a total of over 5,000. Prison and jail incarceration rates as of 2005. Now, I say this every week. I have to go back and forth finding this information because it really doesn't exist in any uh, uh, location where you can just pull it all together from current numbers. So sometimes the only information is available as far back as 2005. That's the case here now with the prison and jail incarceration rates as of 2005 per 100,000. Whites, 262. Blacks, uh, 1,992. Hispanics, zero. So the black to white ratio per 100,000 as of 2005 was eight to one. The reports that I've been hearing as of recently is it's nearer to 10 to 1 now in Maine. Wow, that is freaking amazing. You got 95% white in the state, but you got blacks being incarcerated at 10 to 1. Quick facts the number of violent crimes in Maine increased nearly 10% between 2004 and 2009, but it's below the rate of violent crimes in 1995. Although the annual percentage change in state prison populations nationwide decreased by 0.3% in 2009, Maine's prison population increased 1.4%. Maine's incarceration rate is three times lower than the national average, making it the lowest incarceration rate in the country, 150 per 100,000. Maine has the lowest violent crime rate in the country, which is 119.8 per 100,000 the jail systems now we're moving forward in time two thousand and thirteen maine has sixteen counties according to the latest jail census taken in two thousand six there are fifteen jail facilities and one thousand six hundred and forty two inmates the maine department of corrections is responsible for inspecting jails for standards compliance the prison system as of December 31, 2013, the main prison population was 2,173. The state DOC operates seven adult facilities. The Community corrections System. The active probation population supervised under the Division of Adult Community Corrections was 5,415. As of September thirtieth, 2013, Maine does not have a parole system. The crime rate in Maine as of 2013 is about 21% lower than the national average. Property crime rates count for about 95% of the crime rate in Maine, which is about 15% lower than the national rate. The remaining 5% are violent crimes and are about 63% lower than other states. Maine, as of 2013, has a rate of about 63% lower than the national average of incarcerated in prison adults per 100,000. Maine, as of 2013, has a rate of about 57% lower than the national average number of probationers per 100,000. And also, Maine, 2013, has a rate 99% lower than the national average for the number of parolees per 100,000. Taxpayers in Maine paid about 44% higher than other states per inmate in 2012, where each inmate was valued at $46,404 per year per inmate. Wow, that's almost double what most other places are getting. Further, United States Attorney Thomas E uh... Del- delahanty the second announced uh... that the district of maine collected one million five hundred and twenty five thousand nine hundred eighty dollars in criminal and civil actions in fiscal year two thousand fourteen of this amount 847901 was collected in criminal actions and six hundred and seventy eight thousand was collected in civil actions additionally the u.s. attorney's office in maine Working with partner agencies and divisions, collected 484,379 in asset forfeiture actions as of fiscal year 2014. And there you have it. Maine is Ferguson. Well, damn. Ten to one, man. I, just,
1: I mean, did I call it, man? Uh, you know, between you and me, what we talk about when we talk off the show—did I call it or did I call it?
2: You called it, man. You know, damn, man. I'm happy that Maine doesn't arrest as many people as Louisiana or many of the other states, but at the same time, they're still overdoing it more than those states. So you got 95% white people. That's why you don't have a lot of arrests going on, because, you know, the police just don't want to arrest white people, it seems like. <laughs> so they go right to the black community, and because of that, you have almost 10 to 1. For every one white person in their prisons, is 10 black people.
1: I mean, at some point, at some point, do we have anyone who's interested in arguing even the physical impossibilities of the criminal justice system. I mean, damn. How can you how can these numbers keep being this way across the country, man? How can this keep being this way every we in the M's now, we in Maine A through Z in this country every damn state people, please help me. Please help me understand. How is it not a slave state? How are we not still in modern-day slavery? How is racism over? How are we post-racial? How does the freaking Obama being the president have a damn thing to do with these kind of numbers? How does the little bit of reform that he put forward to, to the sentencing? or to the, I mean, how do you take any of these pieces, what you trying to do with all of these little BS, little, little pieces of, of information to prop this bull, prop this mess up, is like taking a toothpick and trying to make an elephant stand on it. I mean, the, the, your logic is thin. There's no way you can tell me you think that any of this shit is legal, is righteous, is correct, is sustainable, is healthy, is fair. None of it, man. And
2: ten you know,
1: times, dude. Ten times? Seriously?
2: Ten times. Shit. And the new governor uh, that we were talking about earlier, his idea now, because it's illegal to have these prison, private prisons in Maine, apparently. Right. So his idea now is to work with CCA and arrest people in Maine and send them off to other states to be stored. So Maine can make money and the other states can make money and CCA makes money on both of them.
0: You know, guys, um... I've been, uh, conversating with some racist suspect. Now I'll say they white supremacists. Anybody who supports a monument to a white supremacist enslaver, you know, and, and the monument says that these people, you know, fought to uphold Anglo-Saxon so- society, that's white supremacy, you know what I'm right. saying? And, and, and so interacting with some of those people through the local media's website in the comment section one of them said well what about them yankees that was enslaving you and 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 my first thought is who still talks like that you know it's 2015 it's not 18 you know 76 or whatever you know yankees come on man i'm not trying to uh hear that but i'm like you know if they tune in the new abolitionist radio i say i told that guy i said hey lincoln ain't never free no slaves so you know i don't know what you're talking about you want to put uh black people in a box because you see my picture in my red black and green and you want to automatically assume i'm a democrat or this or that i support barack obama and blah 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 put me in a label but i mean these people practice slavery and so are you telling me then that you know you are uh, you want you think it's correct to honor these people then you're a white supremacist you know what i'm saying and 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 but these people don't realize that the south didn't lose the war if anything we could call it a draw a lot of people lost their lives but the south never and the rest of the country for that matter did not lose their rights uh the rest of the states did not r- lose their rights to practice slavery I also
2: found out that uh, Maine is using the family courts to exploit exploit and extort people as well. And there's a story on New Abolitionist Radio about that. We reported it before on how family courts are often used for that particular purpose. And apparently that is the case in Maine. So you can read up that on New Abolitionist Radio. Man, this stuff just blows my mind, Scotty. You know, the more I learn, the more I understand that I don't know anything. I don't know anything that is. Well, you know,
0: you just don't. You haven't reached the extent of it. You haven't come to the end of the line. You keep finding out more every day. I would not classify you as someone who doesn't know anything, like you know some of these white supremacists down here that I have to deal with. That's a victim of a public education, you know. So you know, I'm not ignorant.
2: I'm Far from ignorant, that's for sure. But uh, I'm well aware that as much as I've learned. There is so much more to know that would probably give me a heart attack just from trying to figure it out. <laughs> just these patterns we found over the weeks with the uh, America is Ferguson sering, series is shocking. And I was hope that uh, attorneys out there or uh, aspiring attorneys would use this information that we've provided for you to start making some changes. Well, there you have it, man. That is our America is Ferguson series. I guess we're coming up on our next segment before our break, uh, which would be our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. And uh, this week we have uh, – pull it up here. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Everton Wa- uh, Wagstaff, who after nearly 23 years behind bars and an even longer legal battle to prove his innocence – was finally freed. Uh, Everton Wagstaff was declared innocent July 2015 of kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder. And uh, I'd just like to add that for the past few weeks we've been showing you examples of people who were in prisons and got themselves out. It's not just the Innocence Project that frees people. People free themselves just like they did back in the 1800s. And they get in there and they study law and they find ways to get themselves out and prove their innocence. So uh, Johanny, do you want to manage that one? Sure.
1: Uh, again, this is our Rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad segment. Uh, um, for those that maybe are new listeners to the program or new, you know, new guests of ours here visiting with us here on the program, Uh segment where we talk about people that are on the prison plantation. So again, this is modern day slavery as we've already been talking about for the, the first hour or so of the program, all the different incidents of slavery, uh, human
2: enslavement
1: and human trafficking is going on. Uh, obviously all the brutality and the, the beatings and the starvation and the, the, the deaths that go on you know, in custody. All of this is modern day slave plantation conditions. And uh, we have occasionally those who are able to escape whether it be through the programs like the Innocence Project or the, uh, the still relatively new uh, uh, Brooklyn District Attorney, uh, uh, Craig, uh, what's his name, Ken Thompson? Yeah. Um, that uh, is doing his works up there to, to reverse these these uh, cases. So this is how people are using the, the so-called modern-day Underground Railroad system to escape the prison plantations. And so our brother today is uh, Everton Wagstaff, a 45-year-old New York man who uh, spent over 23 years in maximum security prison after being convicted in 1992 of kidnapping and uh, eventual death of a 16-year-old uh, girl named Jennifer Negron in the East New York section of Brooklyn. Uh, his, in, his case was investigated by the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office um, because the evidence was always available. They just never wanted to to actually, look at the evidence when they convicted him, that the man was ev- innocent. So, after ever since the white staff was arrested 20 years ago, he's been emphatic that he was innocent uh, so much so that over the years he rejected several opportunities to walk out of prison because there was a caveat release would mean that he would have to admit remorse for the crime. So, that's convictions, folks. That's that's real. Like, I know I didn't do it, and the principle is more important than actually walking out of the prison and admitting that you guilt, that you did something when you know you didn't do it. So he had a chance to leave, and he wouldn't leave because he wanted to be exonerated completely for something he never did. The Brooklyn District Attorney's Office started investigating his case around 2013 because two new eyewitnesses uh, had claimed that Wagstaff and his co-defendant, Reginald Connor, who accepted a parole uh, in exchange for registering himself as a sex offender. So you see, this is they put that out there for you. We'll let you go. And they had the evidence, so somebody knew that these people were innocent. Uh, in addition to the potentially exculpatory is offered by the new eyewitnesses, DNA testing of hair found in the victim's hand, as well as a scraping from under her fingernails, Excluded both Wagstaff and Mr. Connor. So again, we have another case where a brother is sitting here with TNA evidence proving he didn't do it. The original witnesses recanting or being found to be mm-hmm. some guilty of something they own sales, or or like our case last week, being paid by the FBI mm-hmm. to be professional witnesses, or many other things that are going on to to put these people in prison and the real evidence is there all the time proving that they never had anything to do with this uh... Mr. Dwyer explained that during the investigation there was a lack of substantive substantive evidence that even pointed to Wagstaff or Connor's involvement in any crime the investigation relied heavily on the testimony of a single informant a woman who was known to be dependent on crack cocaine and who claimed that she was an eyewitness to the kidnapping she testified that the men dragged girl away from her home and forced her into their car. She also testified that there was a third man in the back seat of the car, but only Wagstaff and Connor were ever charged. After he served the majority of his 25-year sentence, Mr. Wagstaff asked Mr. Dwyer, what is my life about all this stuff, all this evidence of innocence? All of it has been brought forward. And I think, yes, this is it, straight to the point. No way around it. But here I sat in prison all these years later. From another story uh, that was from PIX11, there was actually a video uh, talking about the brothers' life. When he went into prison, he was actually functionally illiterate. But while he was behind bars, he took courses that helped him learn how to read and write. And he eventually began to investigate his own case and showed sympathetic pro bono lawyers who agreed to take on his case that detectives had randomly targeted him and Mr. Connor, So he had to actually fight for his own way out in this situation. He had to learn how to read. He had to learn how to read. This man was a grown man when he went in. He was not a little kid. This was a grown old man when he got convicted and put in prison. Had to learn how to read, then had to reach out to attorneys that would take his case pro bono and show them the information that he found that proved his own innocence just to sit there for the the remainder of a nearly 25-year sentence before he was finally let go. And in the year he was re- released, there was over 50 exonerations already in the same year. So, salute to our brother Everton
2: Wagstaff. Salute. You made it out,
1: brother. You made it out. Wow. wow.
2: The story that we put on the page to, for you to view uh, shows you how easily people can be wrongfully convicted and how often they're wrongfully convicted. And this man's, uh, what he accomplished is monumental. As Johannin said, he didn't even know how to read, basically. Taught yeah. himself to read, taught himself law, got himself out after 23 years. This is just, uh, oh man, it's heartbreaking sometimes. But at the same time, it is also uh, something that will inspire you because these people are getting out. There are people getting yes. out who have an underground railroad, and people are getting free. They're getting out. And I guess even after 20 or 30 years, if you're getting out, you're getting out, and that's all that matters. I know that uh, our brothers who were um, in Angola prison, uh, like Herman Wallace, wished they could have got out after 23 years. Uh, right. Instead, he spent 40 years in, in Angola Angola's prison in solitary, and he wished he could have got out of 23 years. That would have been 17 more years he would have been able to spend with his family. An innocent man. Yeah. So, salute to you, my brother.
1: I want to add something, too, um, from uh, Brother Jeffrey Descovic, who's himself a, a, a former inmate that was actually uh, exonerated and began, um, began his own uh, company, basically that investigates and helps, you know, with the Innocence Project type investigations and and, uh, exonerations. He's quite an advocate for for the wrongfully convicted. Um, He had a comment about what's going on in our system. He says, uh, no one should be convicted based only on an informant without some other piece of information. We need to have better identification procedures. We need to videotape police interrogations. We need to have a better, you know, the police interrogation is not going to be videotaped unless it's going on the first gate. Now, if it's not going on TV to get ratings or to make the cops look, you know, like badasses or something, you're not going to see the dirty, underhanded routines of, of a John Burge-type crew. You're not going to see what's going on, like in the uh, Chicago black sites, uh, Holman Square. You're not going to see what they do when the people to force Confessions out of people, like they did out of the the uh, the uh, brothers uh, convicted uh, of, the, of the Central Park rape, you know, the uh, what they call them, Central Park Five, you know, where you put one against another and beating people and torturing people and taking young kids and all these people we've talked about. You're not going to see what they really do unless it's on, you know, the uh, first 48. And so, but he says, oh, we need to we need to videotape these interrogations. We need to have a better system of public defense. The public defender system is beyond overtaxed. It's just totally insane that we expect this to be able to help people. Uh, we need to preserve evidence. This is key. This is what we really caught my eye. We need to preserve evidence so that if DNA is an option to be utilized and it's only used in 5 to 12 percent of cases, do you understand how DNA is only being used in five to twelve percent of cases. Do you understand that that's that is the state working to exclude something that could keep more people out of prison? I mean, how how prevalent is DNA uh, technology, and, and you know, like that would be like saying we can't use fingerprints? Only ten percent of people are fingerprinted when they're when they're booked and arrested and booked in the in the jail. That's how prevalent DNA uh, science is is in the the mainstream. It's it's that easy to take that information and use it. And only five to twelve percent of cases are are using DNA to to either convict or exclude people. That should that's a conspiracy of some sort, right there. A conspiracy to enslave citizens.
2: Sorry. I agree. I agree with you, brother. I just
1: just can't believe that. How how is that possible? Only five to twelve percent of these cases even use Mm -hmm. DNA.
2: As 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 if they don't want the people to be free. Do um, you know we've reported before here on the Riders of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, where their DNA uh, has sat for 12 and 15 years in boxes, yeah. waiting for yeah. somebody to just go get it. And when they went looking for it, they found it exactly where it was supposed to be. All they had to do was go get it the first time. Wow. So a lot of railroading is going on. They just got to get prisons filled. That's their main goal. That's the goal of these quota systems. That's why they're stopping people on the streets for taillights that may or may not be out. Uh, and sometimes they end in fatalities. But their goal is to fill these prisons. And no matter how much you talk about reform, you have contracts With private prisons across the United States guaranteeing 80 to 100% occupancy rates for the next 25 years. So, how are you going to go against those contracts talking about reform? You're not. That's it. You can't reform slavery. You can't. There's only one option when it comes to slavery abolition. And that's what we're here for, and that's what we're all about the abolition of slavery. We want an end to all private prisons in America. We want them banned and gone for good. We want the 13th Amendment's exception clause in the federal constitution removed. We want the same language removed from any state constitution that has exception clauses like Georgia and their exception clause for contempt of court. We want those removed. And those like South Carolina that never even Uh, ratify the 13th Amendment, we want them to insert language in there that officially abolishes slavery forever in this country. Indeed, indeed. It's it's not that hard. It's not that hard. Well, we're coming up on our last break. Uh, We've got a few minutes extra after we do our our abolitionists in profile because our guest didn't come in today. So if you want to call in Make sure you press star six and one to queue up from the conference line if you're on the conference line. Uh, You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. Are you searching for the best in online black radio?
0: Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk.
1: They came to Africa to make us civilized. They came to Africa to tell us about Jesus Christ. We were in Africa. They were in Europe. They had the Bible, we had the land. They came to be missionaries. When they left, they had the land, we still have the Bible.
2: Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, if, as I said, if you would like to call in, now is the time. Uh, we're going to take this extra few minutes that we have, as long as we don't have any calls, to uh, give you one more story before we go in to our abolitionists in profile. Uh, The story that we we have is regarding Florida, and its title says it was off the wall. Florida (laughs) police laundered millions in drug money overseas and enjoyed lavish lifestyles. Man, I get so tired of these stories showing you how corrupt these police, especially in Florida are. In Florida, they have disbanded entire police departments yeah. The police departments. Yeah. That's the place where one young brother was uh, stopped and questioned over 200 times, primarily at his place of work. Like they hadn't recognized him after the third time. They had to do it almost 200 more times. In any case, uh, Scotty, do we have any calls in before I start it? No, sir. All right. Johanna, uh, would you like to do the story or you want me to cover it? I don't know if you have it open or not. Yeah, I have it up here. Okay, so hey, You can manage it.
1: All right, again, this is from rawstory.com. It says, uh, it was off the wall. Florida police laundered millions of drug money overseas and enjoyed lavish lifestyle. So, oh, here we go. <laughs> An investigative report by the Miami Herald uh, reveals that two local Flor- Florida pl- uh, police agencies engaged in a
2: slick money laundering scheme ripped from a Hollywood movie. Hold on, hold on, hold on, Did you say police agencies? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow.
1: Yeah, multiple. <laughs> uh reaping a whopping two point four million dollars from sales in drug money. And uh the the Miami Herald story is actually titled High Rollers with Badges and it shows all sorts of lavish lux uh, luxury lifestyle choices in the in the photo collage on the on the uh on the headline. Uh, for undercover crew designed to operate in the shadows, the Tri-County Task Force could be a big-spending, high-rolling force. This was originally published by Michael Sala from the Miami Herald. Um, so back to the raw story, and I'll put the links up to both of them on the, on the page if if you haven't put uh, put them up yet. I put the raw story up already. Okay, all right. Uh, it says the Tri-County Task Force, which consisted of officers from two small police agencies, uh, the Glade County Sheriff's Office and the Ball Harbor Police Department, Laundered millions of dollars via Sun Trust Bank through countries, including Panama and China, is what the Miami Herald found. It says, uh, per the Herald, the Tri-County, uh, Tri-County Task Force turned a money laundering investigation into a multi-million dollar enterprise, spending lavishly on travel and dining while picking up suitcases stuffed with drug cash from as far away as L.A. and even San Juan. The officers used fake names to set up seven accounts starting in 2009 with the help of SunTrust official Ivan Morales, laundering millions each month. The so called Sting operation, <laughs> dirty bastard, the so called Sting operation laundered a total of $71.5 million, but it did not result in any arrests. Oddly enough, The illegal cash was moved overseas despite U.S. policy that forbids such a thing. In the course of the operation, officers picked up $152,740 from a woman who was pushing a baby stroller in Queens. The money was sent to Panama. The next month, they did it again, but they picked up money from outside the Blue Bay Diner in Flushing, New York also. They wanted to pump as much money as possible. Michael McDonald, a trial consultant and former IRS special agent who supervised money laundering stings, told the Herald. It was off the wall, he said. The task force has been disbanded, of course, and officials are in the midst of trying to track down its lavish expenses, which include $100,000 laptops. Wow, That was no
2: laptop, dude. (laughs)
1: Right, right. A a laptop with 50 keys strapped to it. (laughs) iPads. And other electronics, the officers flew first class only, stayed at resorts for $350 a night, and enjoyed dinners with $1,000 tabs. It was off the charts, clandestine. It was an off the charts clandestine pot of money, Jorge Gonzalez, the Ball Harbor Village manager, told the Herald. It seemed like they had a carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to do. Well, they were police officers. And you notice how in this story, it says that the Tri-County uh, Task Force was disbanded, right? That's what I've read here. It says it's disbanded. I'm reading it again. The Tri-County Task Force was disbanded. But what I don't see in this story mm-hmm. or in the Miami Herald uh, original story, I'm looking through, but I'm, Max, I'm struggling to find a part.
2: No charges.
1: They, none of them got charged none with a damn crime. Charge.
2: They just ripped. Damn. I mean, they just exploited everything they could. They were criminals of the highest order, and what happened, they probably got promotions. Maybe one's a chief of police somewhere now, and another one's a lieutenant somewhere, maybe another one's in charge of a youth detention facility that's what happens with people We're trying to tell you how criminal the police forces of America have become i don 't know what they've been telling you and how they make it seem to you like they are this beyond reproach organization of the highest morals but we just showed you tonight from the attorney generals down to the police agencies how they are criminals of the highest order
1: yeah well like um we talked about also um in the past on the program with the uh forfeiture you know civil forfeiture laws and and that being one of the one of the uh Things that we're able to, to use as part of the RICO to continue with criminal conspiracy, uh, policing for profit. Um, that's one of the. That's what they started this whole thing with, uh, according to the Miami Herald. actual Article it says at first to even pay for this so-called sting, they turned to forfeit funds, which are dollars that are seized, uh, cash and other property, and approved by the court. After months of bringing in money from criminal groups. The task force turned to a source of income that would raise questions about how far the unit went to compete for laundering deals. See, the whole point of this of the sting was to appear to criminal groups that they could do anything that needed to be done. They could they could they could travel, they could they could wash money, they could go here and there and do whatever kind of errands for criminal enterprises while they're so called undercover posing as, you know, whatever these people needed to have done. So that's how they're saying that they didn't actually break any law. They were undercover
0: mm-hmm. while they
1: while they were while they were doing all of it. It was all undercover. They, they they weren't actually see that wasn't their real life when they were flying first class in the jets, while they was eating at Morton's Steakhouse for a thousand dollars, uh, while they was staying out in Vegas for three fifty a night, while they was, you know, doing whatever they was doing around the country all the time. This was all they did. That wasn't them. That was all for the job. So okay. under powers <laughs> under powers granted by Congress, federal task force can spend the money earned from staying operations, including tapping into funds they charge the criminals for laundering their cash. <laughs> the Tri-County Force was not a federal unit, however, but they were state-sanctioned, which meant that the money that they would use was considered as evidence. They would have broken the law, said Pat Franklin, a Miami internal affairs expert, who once carried out investigations for Bow Harbor. But you can't just take the money and spend it any kind of way. So I think, uh, you know, the lesson here is it's better to have a badge than not if you're going to break the law.
2: Hmm. There you have it. Money laundering. $100,000 laptops. Even (laughs) though... No such thing exists as a $100,000 laptop out of stock, right. CERN Institute that I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And $100,000 iPads and whatnot. Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: Well. Trips to San Juan, Puerto Rico. Staying in, in the casinos and hotels for $4,500 trips. So you can go pick up $700,000 from from the drug dealers there. Ruth, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, two fifty. You know first class flights is fifteen hundred dollars a seat. You know this is stuff you have to do to enforce the law. <laughs> people man! oh my God, and they got one and they got what uh two point five million total in prison they got about one what, what was the number like a million a million and a half in their own nonviolent drug related charges. And they go out and 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 facilitate more and more drug dealing, so they can keep putting more and more low-level drug offenders behind bars. Well, I mean, that's how this is working, right? Am I am I wrong, or is this is that how the cycle works? They go they go service the big dealers and make sure that they're happy and their money gets laundered, and they travel around the world to take like a concierge service for the big drug dealers, and then the local guys that aren't don't get to be. So they aspire to be undercover. They want to move up and be detectives like these guys. So they're local beat cops busting down a million people a year to throw them into prison on low-level pot possession and in, in trafficking
2: or whatever. This is our system. This is the best system in the world. <laughs> it's all we got. So you don't yeah. gotta play a hate. Uh, yeah. Make a better one if you don't like it. <laughs> And that's all the answers you always receive. If you don't like it, leave the country. We didn't want you here anyway. Yeah. Man, well, I think it's time for us to move on to our uh, abolitionists in profile. We not only recognize our present circumstances, but we also honor and recognize our past and how long we've been fighting for this, and the heroes have been involved in this fight for freedom today's abolitionist in profile is samuel burris 1808 to 1868 samuel burris was a conductor on the underground railroad in the mid-nineteenth century best known for his own narrow escape from possible slavery while helping a fugitive slave born in willow grove kent county delaware in 1808 burris was a free black man he moved his family to philadelphia Pennsylvania, and in 1845 began to actively assist in the Underground Railroad. His assignment was to return to Delaware and Maryland and lead fugitives to safe houses in Pennsylvania. Burris worked closely with William Still, a well-known abolitionist and conductor on the railroad, and Thomas Garrett on this dangerous endeavor. Although slavery was gradually being phased out of Delaware at the time, it was still illegal to participate in the Underground Railroad. The maximum punishment for a free African American doing so in Delaware was being sold into slavery for seven years. Burris was caught in 1847 while helping Maria Matthews, a slave escaping from Dover 100, a plantation near the state capital of Dover. He was immediately imprisoned in Dover and forced to await trial for 14 months. While he was, When he was tried, he was found guilty and sentenced to be sold into slavery for the standard period of time. Unknown to Burris at the time, the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society collected enough money to purchase his freedom. A member of the society, Isaac A. Flint, attended the state auction in which Burris was to be sold. Flint posed as a slave trader and was so convincing in this role that he fooled state officials and even fooled Burris as he thoroughly examined Burroughs' bodies and then actively bid on him. Flint managed to win Burris and the two promptly returned to Philadelphia. Burris remained in Philadelphia until 1852 when he moved his family to California. Although he had stopped participating directly in the Underground Railroad after narrowly escaping from his own possible enslavement, Burris continued to support the abolitionist cause in his new home state. He also remained in contact with William Still throughout the rest of his life. During and after the Civil War, Burris raised funds to black churches in Northern California to assist African Americans affected by the conflict. The funds were often used to feed and shelter former slaves recently freed by the Union Army. Samuel Burris died in San Francisco, California in 1869. He was 60 years old. And we hear at New Abolitionist Radio, salute you, Samuel Burris. Salute. Salute, brother Burris. Man, 14 months in in prison as a black man during the yeah. times when the fugitive slave laws was out. Oh my God, yeah. that had to be horrible. Oh, yeah. And then facing seven more years of enslavement, man.
1: I mean, I, just all of that, all of that running around and sneaking and and posing and lying. I mean, the brother came to bid on him. You know, I mean, it's like every aspect of Is it any wonder that today, basically what black life means is just simply coping. Like, it's not really living. It's just coping. Like, okay, how bad is it? Okay, well, let me figure out how to navigate through that. Like, it's not just a genuine living and existing and exploring and and enjoying the planet and, you know, your life is your own. To just, it's just basically like coping with, you see how bad the circumstances are, and then you use your Negro genius to overcome the most harrowing odds. I mean, it's like a damn cliffhanger or some every freaking week, all the way back then. Shit, that was in the 18, what, 1850s? What about 1650s? You know, 1950s? Is it going to be for 2052? When is it going to stop?
2: And, you know, the scientists just uh, finally agreed that generational trauma is real.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) And that generational trauma we're existing under now. Here in 2015, it is so difficult. And we've got so many people who don't even understand the condition they're in because that's all they've ever known. So they try to make their lives livable and enjoy joy under the conditions that they they are in. But there's communities all across America where the average income is like $11,000 a year, and they don't know anything else. They've never been out of the town, never been out of the state. They don't know anything except what they see on TV and what's around them. Well, we're coming to the close of our program where we normally give our final statements for the evening uh, we're going to finish a few minutes earlier today to give our brother Scotty Reed the opportunity to be able to get ready for his next program. We know he is one of the busiest men in America right now right. and probably under the most duress considering what he has to deal with and what he presents every day. Because Scotty Reed and the Black Talk Radio Network goes far beyond new abolitionist radio involving other programs like Political Prisoner Radio, uh, for instance, and the Tando Show and so on. So, uh, Brother Scotty, salute to you, man. One of these days, and this indeed, is the in fact, indeed. you are going to be the abolitionist in profile. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> indeed. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Black Appreciate Talk. It. Hey, uh, r- remind folks also, uh, please visit BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com uh, or uh, BlackTalkMediaProject.org. The uh, Black, Talk Media, Black Talk Radio Network fundraiser for 2015 is still going on still plenty of time for you to pledge a monthly gift to the ministry. If that, if you want to, Hey, don't send, and I'm not going to call out no names, but these people with these mega churches and these, these football stadiums and $70
2: million planes. <laughs>
1: yeah. Come on, man. You know, okay. That guy's got enough. Seriously. You don't need to send for another prayer cloth. You don't need another autographed, Whoopie cushion from whoever's handing out miracles. Come on, enough's enough.
2: You know, send the ab-
1: some money to the to the to the network and, and help this operation keep going.
2: The abolitionists of the past often felt they were doing God's work, and we feel the same right. way. If you want to support God's work, you're listening to it right here. God wants His people free. And we're doing our best here at New Abolitionist Radio to see that come into fruition. So please support, please. I mean, the things we could do if we had a decent budget, we would have billboards all over the the country talking about the 13th Amendment and showing people that there is an alternative to reform, and it's called abolition, and show them exactly what needs to be abolished. We could really turn minds around by the millions if we had the proper assistance from you and it doesn't matter five dollars or five million dollars. Support is needed. Indeed, indeed. Brother Scotty, would you like to start us off for this evening's closeout?
0: Um. Yes. Um. We have to intensify efforts in the call for the cause of abolitionists. You know, it just makes no excuse, especially when you were in a, a presidential campaign and there's a lot of focus put on the people activity area of politics, you know, and for those that taught reform or even abolitionists, we know that, you know, Frederick Douglass and others, they worked through the legislative process. I have my doubts on whether or not, you know, uh, how much we can get accomplished through that, that area. But I would never tell anybody not to work on that i i uh wholeheartedly support and admire the work Brother Christopher Irvin does as a lobbyist to the uh you know political machine a lobby for the people uh when he you know goes to the Maryland State House and talks to these people man have sit downs with them these so called representatives and advocating for policies that benefit his people. And he's running for city
2: council now
0: too. And so I don't never try to minimize the impact that these people you know, their efforts and and what they may be able to accomplish. I just choose a different area, you know, but we all had the same goal and that's abolitionists. And and right now there's a lot of focus, you know, tomorrow night going to be, I guess, the presidential debates and whatnot. Let's watch that and see if if anything related to slavery is brought up. Rand Paul, I think, is Rand Paul in the In the um, debate, because he introduced that legislation with Cory Walker, it, it falls far short of ending slavery, but it will fix some of the symptoms of the problem, like, you know, felony disenfranchisement and things of that nature. And so we could hopefully, you know. Reduce the amount of people who are being disenfranchised through felonies and, you know, just put it's set up to go right back into slavery. So, you know, I would just say people step up your efforts in, in educating yourself and educating others about the cause of abolitionists. Because, you know, if you're abolitionists, you should be recruiting people, you know, whenever possible because we need, we you know, their strength in numbers. There's some truth to that. So those are my comments I'll leave you with uh for uh this week on new abolitionist radio All right, brother indeed. johannes
1: indeed indeed well said uh, Scotty reed um well said we're in a, we're in a really interesting time with this political uh card game shell game that you got going on um uh, so i I really hope people are paying attention to what you're saying and de- most definitely abolitionism is 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 the true litmus test. You know, are you or are you against slavery? It's, it's pretty easy to answer, but when you don't even hear people talk about it, well, I think that tells you their answer right there if they're not willing to discuss it. Um, I want to end with just uh, giving a, a shout-out to Brother uh, Robert uh, Robertson, uh, he's becoming a longtime uh, Facebook friend and, and a bit of a mentor in the abolitionist movement for me personally. Um, always uh enjoy our back and forth conversations, uh just you know, whether through inbox or on my post on my personal Facebook page. Uh he gave me a bit of information some time ago that I meditate on quite frequently and try to share with people. And uh, I think it says pretty much all we need to know about all of these deaths. Like we started off the program talking about the young brother in Memphis that uh likely defended his life from uh, a racist slave catcher aggressor. Um uh, and all the you know sisters that have died in custody in the last month, uh, on and on, everything from our babies to the old folks dying at the hands of the police. Uh, he gave me this a while back. He says all of this, all of these things we talk about, the brutality, the corruption, all of it uh, stems from the 13th Amendment and the exception clause found there. the police are the primary enforcers of the exception in the 13th Amendment. That is their primary jobs. The people that the 13th Amendment was intended for were African people in America. That is why it is called a reconstructive amendment to repair or reconstruct the lives that were damaged by the inhumanity of slavery. The exception was placed in the 13th Amendment for the intention to specifically re-enslave all those freed Africans. It was intended specifically for African people, and it has impacted mainly African people. Africans in America have been criminalized ever since their enslavement to justify the inhumanity of slavery and criminalized after their emancipation to re-enslave them through the Black Code legislation. Legislation, that is where our persecution is coming from, from the appropriate legislation of Section 2 of the. 13th Amendment. It is from legislation that communities become so called ghettos. Every African community across America, every city in America represented by Africans, is being and has been slated for political deprivation, economic disadvantage, social and national disparagement, and white supremacist institutional discrimination. Our solution for all of this is the same now as it ever has been abolition the 13th amendment to the constitution declares that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the united states of america or any place subject to their jurisdiction so people listen mass incarceration and subsequent prison labor for slave wages is not the new jim crow it's just the same old slavery Join us at the Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery Group on Facebook. Join us here on Black Talk Radio Network, new abolitionist radio Podcasts. Power to the people, peace to the abolitionists, and death to the oppressors.
2: Mm. Amen to that. Uh, I guess I'll finish off with the same thing. A couple shout-outs. I want to give a shout-out to uh, Jeff and Keith from Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM who just recently interviewed me uh, regarding abolition to help get the message out there and to reach their audiences on the FM station. Uh, We had a a wonderful conversation, and I put out a lot of good information. That will be released on August 10th on 90.1 FM, so make sure you check that out. Hopefully, uh, I said something that will make an impact and make some changes, because I always look at it like this is my opportunity to change the world, and I always address it that way. I'd also like to announce the launch of our new website, the thenewwordorder.com, which is a collection of all of the resources and assets and information that we have throughout all of these things we've been doing in one location. At the thenewwordorder.com, you will be able to find the video series, uh, I Denounce This So-Called Emancipation as a stup- Stupendous Fraud by Frederick Douglass, uh, which we did in the month of July, uh, June and released on July 4th, which is an incredibly enlightening and educational series that I highly recommend you check out. You'll also find featured content like Policing for Profit from News Channel 4 on there. You'll find music, art, and activism, news and information, lists of freedom-fighting organizations, information and media, places that preserve our history like America's Black Holocaust Museum, which uh, the owners were former guests here on New Abolitionist Radio. And you'll also find resources and researchers Like the America Never Abolished Slavery uh, article, which was written by Angela Chan, uh, telling you exactly how slavery has continued on. And also, you will find all four years, uh, which we just celebrated four years in June, of New Abolitionist Radio right there at thenewwordorder.com. So when you think of the New World Order, just take the L out and go to thenewwordorder.com, and you can get all that there and more. Uh, I'm Max Parthas. I want to say one more thing, and then I'm going to let you go. Abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace.